when I was young, pretty much since I've been born, growing up in Arkansas, I am a fan of all things Arkansas Razorbacks. One of those fandoms includes Arkansas Razorback basketball. Uh, they've always been pretty good per, for pretty much my entire life. Not, you know, they haven't been great every year, but they've been pretty decent just about every year. But there was a seven-year period from the time I was seven years old to the time I was 14 years old where they were awesome. I mean, they were great. They won the, the conference every year in that seven-year period. They made the NCAA tournament every year in that seven-year period. They made the Final Four three out of those seven years. They made the championship game twice in those seven years, and they won the championship one time in 1994. So I was a huge fan growing up. In 1992, so I was 11 years old, 1992, my parents and I and a buddy of mine and our families went to Oxford, Mississippi, which is where the Old Miss University, Mississippi University is, which was actually closer to where we live than Fayetteville was, which is where the University of Arkansas is. And so we went to a game. We were going to a basketball game, University of Arkansas versus University of Old Miss. So we went down there. It's a Saturday afternoon. We went down there early, like around lunchtime. The game was that evening. And so we got to the hotel and we were going to hang out for a little bit and then go to the game later on that evening. So we went to the hotel and my buddy and I and his cousin who was with us, and my, I think my brother was there with us, we just kind of went exploring in the hotel. This is when you kind of felt a little bit more safe to let your kids explore. Either that or my parents weren't good parents, but they, they let us explore. <laughs> and so it was one of those hotels. It was a nice hotel. I think it was a Holiday Inn or something like that, but it was a nice hotel, but all the doors open to the outside. You remember those hotels? You don't see them very often as much. Now everything opens to the inside, but it opened to the outside. And so we could just walk outside and so we're walking along, and we see a door that's open. And I'm 11 years old. My buddy is 11 years old. My brother's six, and, and uh, my buddy's cousin was a year younger, so he was 10 at the time. And curious minds of boys at that age thought that we would peek in and see what's going on in this random hotel room that we don't know these people. So we peer our eyes in, and we are blown away to find four players from the University of Arkansas basketball team who we were going to see that night. And our eyes must have been as wide as saucers and we must have just frozen at watching them because they turned and looked at us and then they did the unthinkable. They actually talked to us. <laughs> I mean, I'm 11 years old. I'm going to see these guys play. They're great. They're awesome team and they actually talked to us, it gets even better. We actually got to go in their room. My parents were close, so we're not walking into random people's, you know, and they were basketball players, so, you know. Um, we didn't care. We're just walking in. And so we got to go in. We got to hang out with them. They were watching film. They were kind of just getting ready for the night's game, and they were so awesome. We got to take pictures with them. We got to hang out. It was like the coolest thing outside of getting married and having kids, you know, and all that stuff. It was like the coolest thing ever. But it got me thinking, what is it about our desire to meet famous people? You know, all of us have this kind of desire. that It's cool to meet someone who is well-known or, or someone who is, is famous. It's just, it's neat to be able to meet someone that we look at on TV or in a, a magazine and we see them and it just blows us away to see these people that we, we 
we know and we see. And, and there's something about meeting someone famous that makes us feel important, makes us feel special, makes us feel wanted. I, I, I use that story to kind of paint that picture of, of what it's like to maybe meet someone like that. And you take a video, you take a picture, and all of a sudden you want to share it, you want people to know, because it's, it's pretty cool to meet someone that is famous. And if that's true for most of us, then I've got good news for you. Because the most amazing, unbelievable, important, revolutionary person in the history of mankind, in the history of creation, in all of the universe, at the center of it all, holding together, God, your heavenly Father, cares about you, invites you in, loves you, is concerned about you. Isn't that good news? We have been in the midst of a series entitled, What's in Him for Me?, in which we're walking through Ephesians chapter 1, and we're talking about some of these foundational blessings that the Apostle Paul gives us that that we experience when we are in Christ, when we're in a relationship with Him. And so we're walking through these blessings to kind of see what do they mean to us, to see what truly is in Him for you and for me. So if you haven't done so already, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 3. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So far in our series, we talked about the first couple of blessings, and if you've missed those first two lessons, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. kind of sets the stage for some of what we're doing. You don't have to go through that to to know what we're going to talk about this morning, but it does help to kind of understand where we've been in the series so far, and I encourage you to go listen to our podcast or go listen to uh, watch them online. Uh, First week, we talked about how we are chosen in God. We've been chosen in Christ since before the creation of the world and all that that means and, and all that's wrapped up in that idea. We talked about that, and then last week, we talked about what it means to be adopted in Christ, that there's a blessing in God inviting us and adopting us into his family. And then today, we're going to talk about the third blessing that Paul gives us, and that is that we have redemption through the blood of Christ, or as the title says, that we have been set free. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to go to my grandparents' house. I love going to my grandparents' house. And so every year, we'd go down there for Christmas, and we went there other times, but every year at Christmas, we'd go down there, and my, or my aunt's birthday was right around the Christmas time, and so my aunt and my uncle— my mom and dad and my other uncle would always go out to celebrate my aunt's birthday. And so that left five of us kids, my brother, myself, and our three cousins, with my grandparents. And so what would they do? They would take us up to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and they would take us to every kid's dream to go to Chuck E. Cheese. And so we would go to Chuck E. Cheese, and they would give us, you know, a handful of tokens, and they'd just tell us, hey, you do whatever you want to, play all the games you want to. And so when the tokens run out, that's, that's it, but here's, here's the tokens. And so we'd play skee-ball, and we'd play whack-a-mole, and we'd play all the video games, and the goal was to get as many tickets as you could, right? 
And so you'd get as many tickets as you could so that ultimately you could get to that glass counter behind you know, right next to the register, right? And I just remember, don't you remember those times? Some of you, maybe you're like, I don't care about Chuck E. Cheese, never been. But for some of you are younger, maybe that endless stream when you hit the jackpot on one of those games of tickets just coming out, like a dream from heaven, like a vision from heaven of all those tickets. But the goal, the goal at Chuck E. Cheese was not to leave with the most tickets, but to spend those tickets on what was behind the counter, Right? And so you had all those things pinned up behind the, the counter and you had all the, the things and toys and trinkets underneath the, the counter that you could spend the, your tickets on. And of course, every Chuck E. Cheese has some item on the back that's worth like 10 million tickets, right? That You have to have a full-time job just to, to get there. But, but everything has a number next to it, the number of tickets that you have to spend to get that toy or that, that trinket. And I remember, you know, we, we would spend, you know, so much, we spent more time, I think, figuring out what we wanted to get with our tickets than we did actually getting the tickets themselves. And we'd see if we could pull our, our tickets together, see what we could get. Probably seemed like hours for my grandparents, but all in the name of getting all these toys and trinkets that would last all of probably a couple of days. My point in telling you that story is, you know what Chuck E. Cheese calls that, 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 counter that area where you turn in your tickets and get those prizes they call it their redemption center their redemption center it's the place where you turn in your tickets and get a toy so that you can loose it from its bondage to chuck e cheese a lot of people when they hear that word redemption i tell you that because a lot of people when they hear that word redemption they think of it as a a bible word as a church word, as a religious word, but really it comes from the world of commerce. It's a world out of the ancient business and trade world, specifically the slave trade. It's estimated that when Paul writes this book of Ephesians and he uses this word redemption, that there are around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And Ephesus in particular had one of the largest slave markets anywhere in the Roman world. It was a major city along an international trade route. Ephesus had this place called the Agora. Maybe you've heard it. It was just this large, giant marketplace where you could go to purchase just about anything you wanted. You could buy spices from the Far East. You could buy cloth, the finest of cloth from the Middle East. You could buy the latest fashions from Rome. You could buy exotic foods and all of these unique foods and on top of all that you could buy a human being as a slave. Paul spent almost three years in the city of Ephesus and he watched all of this go on. He saw all of this go on. You can read about a lot of his experiences in the book of Acts in Ephesus and so when Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus and he uses the word redemption it would have sparked something in their minds. They had a context for it. They all lived in a world of a slave trade. And even more than that, last week we talked about some of this idea of the baby dump that was there in the city or outside of the city of Ephesus. And if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go listen to that. I'm not going to talk about all of it this morning, but, but if you had a child that was a girl because they valued sons over daughters, if you had a child that was a girl or if you had a child that was, a, was, was handicapped in some way, or if you had a child that was born out of an affair that was a, a threat to the family inheritance or estate, then you could literally just leave your child at this baby dump. Just drop them off. Of course, many of the babies would die of exposure. Others, however, 
would be picked up by people, but not to adopt them, but rather to raise them as a slave or a servant in their household, and then they would train them to work in some kind of trade. Now, what would happen is that some people over time would decide that that slave would be more useful or more uh, advantageous to them if they were to be sold and they had the money instead of the slave. And so they would take them to the open market and they would attach a monetary price to them. And so Paul's readers and, and, and in that culture, they would have understood this term redemption to mean to release or to loose from bondage through the payment of a price. You don't just loose them, you loose them through the payment of a price. When someone would purchase a slave, it was said that they were redeeming a slave from his or her present bondage to their owner, and they were taking possession of them themselves. And you see this theme not just in the world of commerce or in the, the secular world, but you see it in, in the Old Testament as well. All the way back into the, the Old Testament, this idea of redemption and purchasing from, from bondage. Back in Exodus, it's said about God when he, when he brought Israel out of Egyptian bondage that he redeemed them out of Egyptian bondage. He paid a price in his own right. Now, in Paul's day, people would spend money to redeem or to loose a slave from their present bondage in order to make them a slave of their own. But when we talk about God redeeming us, we mean something a little bit different because God redeems us not merely to make us a slave, but to set us free as his sons and daughters. Now, I've mentioned this a couple of times in the sermons so far that, that when Paul is writing this, he is writing this from prison. Paul is in prison. And I find it highly ironic that Paul talks about redemption. He talks about being set free when he's actually in physical bondage. You see the irony there? And yet even though Paul is in prison and even though he's in chains, he's still been set free. Make no mistake about it. Now you might ask, set free from what? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked because that's where we're going this morning. And I'm going to give you four realities when it comes to what our redemption in Christ means for you and me. And the first one is this. Our redemption in Christ means apart from Christ, you are in bondage. Apart from Christ, you are in bondage. If I have redemption in Christ, then apart from Christ, that means that I am in bondage. The question is bondage to what? And I think Paul gives the answer right here in what we read earlier in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now we're going to talk more about forgiveness and the blessing of forgiveness next week week, but what you need to know is that until someone experiences and knows forgiveness in Christ, your sins have extraordinary power over you. Now, you may not recognize it, you may not admit it, you may not understand all that that comes with, but I'm telling you that your sins have extraordinary power over your life, even some, for some who are in Christ, but especially if you are outside of Christ. When we live in an unforgiven state, we are under an enormous burden and we attempt to cope with it in so many different ways and yet apart from Christ you can't get out from under it why do we have this burden well I think for starters you and I are created in the image of a holy God Bible tells us all the way back in the beginning that you and I were created in the image of God and God is holy and Paul adds to this idea in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 that we read uh, a couple weeks ago we were chosen in Christ 
before the creation of the world to be what? To be holy and blameless. So not only are you made in the image of a holy God, but he chose you in Christ, that those who are in Christ would be holy and blameless. That was God's plan from before the creation of the world. And so there's something within the fabric of the human spirit because you are made in the image of God and the fabric of, of, of your life and your, your spirit that lets you know that you are called to holiness. We all at some level have some kind of gut reaction to sin. We all recognize in some way that we've missed the mark, which is one of the definitions of sin in the New Testament, that we've missed the mark. Now, some of you may say, well, I hear what you're saying, but I know plenty of people who don't feel any kind of burden for their sin. They don't seem to have any, their conscience doesn't seem to be bothered at all. Well, let me just give, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but let me just give three quick responses to that, that comment. First, some people mistake a poor memory for a clear conscience. Just because you don't remember it doesn't mean your conscience is clear. Secondly, it is possible to develop a hardness of heart over time, okay? And, and what, what convicted you early on may not convict you anymore because you have let those things go, which leads me to verse, or the third thing. Sometimes we can become experts at ignoring the burden or diverting ourselves from ever seeing it for what it is. And so we divert it, we ignore it, our hearts get hardened, and instead of it really being a clear conscience, we just have a poor memory. And there are a lot of people who live in denial of the burden, and yet you're still in bondage. It doesn't change the reality. Whether you recognize it, deal with it, live with it or not, you still are, de- still are dealing with the fact that you are in bondage and you're dealing with the fruit of the bondage. Several years ago, I was intrigued by a story. Several years ago, <coughs> the Oxford Junior Dictionary removed the word sin from the dictionary. And their reason for removing the word sin is that they said that that's not really used in certain generations anymore and so they said it's really not a a word that's you know on on the lips of a whole lot of people it's not really used anymore and so we're just going to remove the word sin I think another one they removed is the word devil which is you know also interesting we kind of remove that and I wonder if that isn't the fruit of the idea that truth and right and wrong are increasingly subjective in our culture and it varies from person to person, and it's gotten to the point where why even, why even have it in our dictionary? What's the use in even having it in our dictionary? Although, truth be told, the word sin has been removed from our vernacular and our mindsets in our culture a long, long time ago. And some would think, you know, hey, Oxford Junior Dictionary is doing us all a favor, right? They're helping us feel better about ourselves because they're removing sin, and we don't have to feel sinful anymore and convicted anymore and yet the truth is that mentality just takes us one step if not more than that away by trying to find and actually finding true healing and freedom as another story i was fascinated by uh, is the story of a chinese man by the name of li fu yan <coughs> he tried every treatment imaginable for his throbbing headache that he was having. He took pills, he got injections, nothing seemed to help. And this went on for four years. And it wasn't until they finally decided to take an x-ray of his head that doctors realized what the problem was. 
they found, get this, a rusty four-inch that had been lodged into the side of his skull for four years. Four years earlier, he was robbed and stabbed in the side of his jaw. And so the assailant stabbed him and a piece of it broke off. He didn't report it. He didn't go seek help because of the nature of all that was going on and the crime and and some of the things that were going on. And so he decided not to report it. He decided to just let it heal. And yet the whole time, this this rusty four-inch knife blade that's broken off is in the side of his skull. The skin ended up just growing around it. All he knew is he had these splitting headaches for the next four years, and he kept complaining of stabbing pains in his head for some reason. <clears throat> Here's the deal. You and I don't live well with foreign things in our bodies. And with things buried in our lives either. And yet we live in a culture that makes it harder and harder to name the nature of what's buried within us. And the removal of sin from our dictionary might be yet one another illustration of that. But one thing I do know is we live in a culture that encourages us in all kinds of ways to deny our need for redemption and to deny the fact that without Christ we are in bondage. And yet the reality is we still feel the, the pain of that bondage. Now, not everyone is in denial of their need for redemption. There's a lot of people that are tortured by it. That's why you see some people who are on their deathbed absolutely scared to death of the thought that they might meet God and have to answer for everything that they've done. Others think they'll never be forgiven because of something they've done and they're in bondage to that and so they just keep beating themselves up or they just keep giving in to that sin over and over again because they just assume, well, I'll never be forgiven. There's no point in that. There's no hope for me. There are others who live at such a frantic pace, always trying to accomplish more, do more, be more because they can't afford to sit still and be quiet long enough to let all of these other things, the past, the sins, what's going on, what they've done, come into their minds because it would just overwhelm them and so they just stay busy so they never have to think about it. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we admit it or not, we live in bondage to sin outside of Christ. That leads me to the second thing when it comes to our redemption in Christ and what it means, and it's this. Our redemption in Christ means it doesn't come from within us. It's interesting to see how we use the word redemption in our culture. We often associate it with things like coupons and gift cards and airline miles. We don't usually associate it with people, and when we do, do you notice that we associate it with it's something that we do for ourselves, that we redeem ourselves, and so an athlete, we'll talk about an athlete redeeming himself, right? And, and so, you know, we would say, you know, he, he, he had a, a bad game last game. He needs to redeem himself next game. What are we saying? That he needs to, to go out there and redeem himself and loose himself from the bondage of being identified by his last loss. Or, or teachers will talk to students about redeeming themselves. Hey, you know, you didn't have a great grade, so I'm going to let you retake the test. I'm going to let you redeem yourself. So that, what are they saying? I'm going to let you loose yourself from the bondage of being defined by that, that bad grade that you got so you can redeem yourself. Talk about companies will say to frustrated customers, give us an opportunity to redeem ourselves. In other words, give us an opportunity to, to set ourselves free from producing a, a failed 
product for you. Give us a chance to redeem our be quite, quite misleading because it leads us to conclude that our redemption comes from us. That we can redeem ourselves, but the kind of redemption that Paul is talking about isn't found within ourselves. It's not found from doing enough or being enough or going out there and redeeming yourself from something you did in your past to do it better in the future. It's found in Christ. Have what it takes. You don't have what it takes to pay the price to set you free from the bondage of sin. And if I did, why on earth did Jesus come? And why did he die? There was a funny story involving George W. Bush several years ago. He was still in office, and he was trying to raise money for the Republican Party, and so he threw a $2,500 a plate fundraiser. And uh, President, or Vice President Cheney sent out um, invitations to everyone, and one of those invitations went out to a guy by the name of Robert Kirkpatrick, which may not mean anything to you except for the fact that Robert Kirkpatrick, at the time the invitation was sent, was incarcerated in an Ohio State prison for drug possession. When the Associated Press found out he got invited to the fundraiser, they asked him, naturally, for a comment, and he said from behind bars, please tell President Bush that I'd be happy to attend, but he's going to have to pull some strings to get me here. You see, being chosen in Christ and being adopted in Christ in many ways is God saying, I'm inviting you. I've saved a spot for you at the table. I I want you to come. I want you to be at my table. I want you to join in my family. But the only way you get a place at the table is if at some point you are redeemed. If you're loosed by someone who has the resources to purchase you and set you free. And that someone and that only someone is Jesus. And he didn't pull strings. He went to a cross. I often hear the phrase, and you've probably heard it. I probably said it myself that salvation is free, that our salvation is free. And that is true. Your salvation is free, but don't mistake it being free for it being cheap because it's not cheap. And the cost was Jesus' blood and his death. It's free, but it's not cheap because Jesus paid the price for you and me. You and I aren't welcomed into God's family. We weren't chosen. We aren't adopted. We aren't welcomed into God's family because of any merit of our own, because of how good you are, or because you like Jesus' teachings, or because you show up at church, or you do this, or you do that. You are welcomed into God's family because Jesus paid the price for you to be redeemed and set free, and he purchased it through his blood. And the cross is our redemption center. It's a whole lot better than Chucky. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, For you know that it was not with, with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from, the an, from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus' blood tells me a couple of things about myself. First, it tells me that my sin cost me far, far more than I could ever realize and probably far more than I'd like to admit because it costs the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we downplay our sin and we need to realize it, it costs the Son of God his life to pay for my sins. But then that should also tell us the second thing the blood of Jesus tells us is that you are worth far more than you realize. 
far more, th- far more than, than we often give ourselves credit for. And it's a, the blood of Jesus is a validation to how much you are worth to Jesus. He says you are worth it. God says you are worth it because in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, which leads me to a third thing our redemption in Christ means. It's simply this. We are his. We are his. Last week we talked about how God claims us as his own. And when he claims us as his own, that means that we are his. Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19, you are not your own. You're bought at a price. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. You are his. And waking up to this reality makes all the difference in the world and how I view my life and how I view my circumstances. It's, it's interesting to, to see how Paul views himself and describes himself in the book of Ephesians. I talked about how he's in prison, and yet that's, he, he doesn't primarily identify himself there. Listen to how, what he says in a couple of verses. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, as a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is in prison, and yet he doesn't refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome He refers to himself as a prisoner for the Lord because he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ before he sees himself as a prisoner of Rome. He knows he belongs to Christ before he belongs to Rome. And the reason that's important is because your circumstances, your situation in life, your your experiences, those things are not who you are. You know, so often we think about those things, the the things that we do or the things that we've done or, or the things that have been done to us, and we identify ourselves by those things. Those are just things that have happened to you or things that you've done. They are not who you are. That's why it's so important to know your spiritual identity and to know your spiritual geography, to know who you are and where you live. One of the saddest things to me one of the saddest diseases is, is dementia and Alzheimer's. I've had struggles with family members and going through that. One of the saddest things is to watch someone that you love not know where they live or who they are or who you are. But one of the saddest things, even sadder than that, is Christians who don't know who they are and where they live. And they forget to live in the reality of their spiritual identity and their spiritual geography. And for Paul, he lives in Christ before he lives anywhere else. And you live in Christ before you live anywhere else. And when you remember that you live in Christ and how you respond everywhere else. I find it interesting what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this to some people who are slaves, and they're living in this reality of being slaves. They're living out of this reality. And listen to what he says to them. He says, starting in verse 21, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us and, and, you know, because we don't, it's hard to wrap our minds around slaves, but that is powerful stuff because he's telling them, hey, don't let your status in society, don't let your status of, of what you feel like other people define you as, don't let those things define who you are. Don't let those things tell you that you are not free. And the reason this is so important is because sometimes we look to our circumstances to tell us who we are and how free we are. Others of us look to our past and our sin to tell us who we are. Others of us look to other people and how they respond to us to tell us who we are and try to discern who we are. But our redemption in Christ means that we are not our circumstances. 
we are his. You are not your sins, you are his. You are not your failure. Failure is not a person. Failure is an event. You are not your failures, you are his. There are so many things that we label ourselves by and that we allow other people to label us by but you are not labeled by your circumstances. You are not labeled by your sins. You are not labeled by what other people say about you. You are not labeled by any of those things. God is saying to you, let me be your label. I've claimed you. You are mine. I've bought you at a price to redeem you, to make you my son or my daughter. And because we are his, the last thing our redemption in Christ means, I give you this morning, is that we are set free to live free in him and for him. We are set free to live free in him and for him. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6. He says, he says what then? Shall, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. But don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? See, even if you don't realize you're in bondage, you are. You're the slave to the one you obey. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Jesus Christ, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you used to be slaves to sin. You have come to obey from, the heart, <coughs> from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. The reality is, that even though you and I are free in Christ, we will all have, continually have, circumstances and seasons and challenges in our lives that will give us new, fresh opportunities to tap into and live in light of our redemption in Jesus Christ, to acknowledge that he is our label. Because the reality is God doesn't just free you and set you free to walk back into those old labels or to do whatever you want to do. You see, God doesn't just set you free to say, oh, yeah, do what you want to do. Live how you want to live. Walk back into those old labels. That's fine. Live how you want to live. That's fine. Because in the end, those things lead back to bondage. Doing life your way leads to bondage. And many of you have found that out the hard way. I know I have in my life. But rather, he sets us free to do what we ought to do, what we were created to do. He liberates us to walk in relationship with him and to be the kind of people that he's called us to obey, to, to be, to obey him and to choose his will for our lives, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He doesn't just set us free to be free. He sets us free to live free in him and for him. You see, because I'm chosen, I know who I am. And because I'm adopted, I know what I have access to. And because I am redeemed, I am free to live the way he's called me to live. And I'm telling you, that is the best way to live. And it's the only way to experience life in him and freedom in him. Jesus says in John chapter 8, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth that sets you free is that your heavenly Father bought you at a price to redeem you and to make you his son or his daughter. And I'll close with Jesus' words just a couple verses later 
in verse 34. He says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son or a daughter belongs to it forever. And I love this part. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen to that.